Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Somebody Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're going to make it out of here, we got to work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. This is why you watch 7 News at 5. This breaking story is happening as we speak. To get breaking news from the alert desk. When I know about it, you'll know about it first. So you're always connected with what's happening now, only on 7 News at 5. I just want to throw it out there uh, for the first 30 minutes. You may notice my microphone, I'm a little echoey uh, and this, that, and the other, not as good a quality. That's because I realized I was using the wrong mic. Uh, and then I quickly fixed that 30 minutes in. But we just felt that the that o- those opening 30 minutes were so much fun. And we I literally was crying, laughing at one point. I don't want to have to reproduce. There's no way I could reproduce it. So... Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, just hope you don't mind that, uh, for those just first, I'd say it's about the first 30 to 35 minutes. And then I switch to my professional podcasting mic. Uh, thanks for your understanding and enjoy the show. Damn, Jake, I feel like I have a hard time starting episodes with our normal format, but this one, especially so bleep, blop, bloop. I'm your red and black weird ass display <laughs> that makes no sense. Wizard Holden McNeely. <laughs> And I'm the voice of extreme 90s video game advertiser, yeah. Jake. Step into a world that will blow you away. Yes. Get ready to have your entire brain twisted and filled with disgusting gore and viscera. I miss it so much. I miss when Nintendo ads had like sex in them. Isn't there like a Game Boy ad where it's like right after sex and the guy's in bed playing a Game Boy? Play it loud, play it good. It's time for Nintendo to get you wet. Dude, I just, I should have done the num- crunch the numbers. What am I, 13 when this thing drops on retail spaces? And also at the same time, we collectively as a society just decided that virtual reality was here, even though it wasn't, I feel like this reminds me a lot of our back to the future episode talking about hoverboards. <laughs> like, ah, oh, and I miss being a kid. I don't even think kids can have this anymore because they can just Google everything mm-hmm. back when you could just have a rumor like that. And my thing was I had this friend Ben and uh, a different Ben than actually the Ben I talk about a lot. Actually, it was like even before that this is elementary school Ben. Right. Listen, we're two white guys. Where there's going to be a lot of Bens, there's going to be some Daniels, there's going to be a lot of Michaels in the mix. Yes, absolutely. And he, I now in hindsight realized, was a pathological liar. And I remember him <laughs> convincing us that he had some type of VR headset in his house. We all decided VR was real and that we were getting in on it. And he convinced us we had this probably a couple. I believe the N64 was out, so I mean we're in. The end of elementary school, the beginning, going into middle school, right? And uh, I remember he had convinced us to come over to check this VR headset out. We ended up playing a lot of, I believe, 
Superman and also um, that Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote in 64. Jesus. That was a Super Nintendo game. No, this was Super Nintendo. It wasn't in 64. Super Nintendo, we played that on Super Nintendo a lot because that's the game he had and didn't play virtual reality. And uh, that was only a few years before the Virtual Boy came out. But then the Virtual Boy comes out and is not virtual reality. <laughs> On any level, is it not virtual reality? It is. I The thing about virtual reality, I talk about this a lot on the show, but like if you are a unpopular kid, if you are uh, too short, too fat, too skinny, just if uh, for all the myriad of reasons that a young child can just like not want to exist within their own body, <laughs> uh, video games offers that out. Sure. And the ultimate expression of that fantasy is virtual reality. You know, you see it on TV, you see it in the movies and this this feeling that like you can be you can the game can be so real that you literally just aren't even present in existence anymore. Like what if everything could be the video game? That's the dream. I remember being like looking at stuff. There were pictures of like a guy in like an octagonal kind of. Oh, you're talking about the virtuality machine that uh, was so expensive and unwieldy that arcade owners could not feasibly use it. And so they would have to like rent it out in a traveling show. And it would have to be like a special event that some weirdo pulled up with like two octagons of virtual reality with a giant headset that yeah. stuck out bigger than like two shoe boxes on the front of your head with the gloves and everything running uh 20 frame per second game. Like, no, like, Holden, you have an Oculus uh, Quest 2. Yes. The frame rate is everything for that illusion. Yes. Yeah, you're, fu- I mean, you're literally going to get sick yeah. if you don't have the frame rate right. <laughs> and so, the best possible scenario was a tens up. of thousands of dollar machine <laughs> yeah. that hurt to use yeah. and literally did not even work. T- it was just a choppy, bad game. And the game itself that you played inside it was bad. Yeah, and this is not an episode about the... I know we're going to do a virtual reality episode or maybe just like an Oculus episode, whatever it is, right? We'll probably do multiple, honestly, I mean, as this thing keeps continues to evolve. But this is the story of the early days back when we thought hoverboards were right around the corner <laughs> and virtual reality is totally here right now, even though it was definitely at least two decades away from being a thing that people still aren't that interested in, mind you. Uh, <laughs> or still is it like taking over the retail space by any means, you know what I mean? And and it's still hard to get people to commit to shutting off all of the outside world. It's even more so now than ever. Back then, though, I mean, what else did you have to do? You definitely didn't have a damn phone to get lost in uh, for tens of tens of 20s of hours a day. That's right, 20s of hours a day, I said it. Uh, so this is back when when, you know, it was a failed promise. And also, this is a time, this is just such a little interesting Nintendo story. I feel like we just told one with the Pokemon Snap episode. Mm Kind of ended up becoming this surprisingly deep, interesting tale of the inner workings of Nintendo and how they accidentally almost ended up with a success. Whereas this is the story of them taking a risk and failing. And also, you have to remember at this time, Nintendo, absolute banger. Mm -hmm. Game Boy. Rips open the handheld scene. Complete banger. Nothing can fuck with it. Not even the fully color the same oh, game gear. So many. The, are you kidding me? The Atari Lynx, the Game Gear, all stepped up to the Boy King and failed miserably. And fucking failed. Then you have the Super Nintendo. 
explosively, unbelievably successful. And at this point in time, they're working on the N64. Right now it's called the Ultra 64 when our story picks up. And in the other corner, there's this Virtual Boy development. And this is the story of Nintendo's first big whiff. And maybe its biggest whiff. Because you can say like, oh, you know, people look at the GameCube. People look at the Wii U, especially more recently, and look at those as sort of failures to a certain degree. But nothing failed like the Virtual Boy failed, I don't think, for Nintendo. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, The Virtual Boy sold about 770,000 units. That is terrible. That is not good, uh, considering I think the Wii U is a failure for selling like 12 million units. Right? And so it's even funny to put them together. And I mean, and I feel like people immediately are like, fuck you, GameCube. GameCube rules. And I'm not saying GameCube doesn't rule. I'm saying it was seen as Mm. kind of a flop in comparison to the sales of the other consoles of its day. Just, you know, the general stuff. And yet it doesn't hold a candle to the failure that is the Virtual Boy. And, And it was around during our time. And I don't know who, I don't know what our listenership is like, but... You youngins out there, we're just, we're going to be telling this story, I think, gleefully because we were here for it. Mm -hmm. And it was so weird, like being avid gaming folk, as Jake and I have been all these years, this was such a weird little stitch in the whole, the whole tale of games development. And and we even knew it was weird back then Mm -hmm. when it came out. Barely no one had one. There was all this health scare stuff. There was all this. And this was back when rumors could just really. Well, what am I talking about? Actually, now they're even worse than before with fucking Facebook. But this was back when you could just like just wild rumors could happen that are just so unfounded. Uh, one of my fu- favorite quotes is Gunpai Yokoi is like, we actually f- found out that it's kind of technically good for your eyesight to <laughs> play the virtual boy. That was our studies findings, but we we weren't able to get that in the packaging and the Japanese laws were so intense that they uh, kind of just put a lot of scary warnings all over everything and made people think. But it did actually, did it ever give you a headache, Jake? It never gave me a headache when playing it. But I, I don't know. I, I never played it for like a lengthy, lengthy amount of time. Uh, you rented it? I was a card-carrying member of the Nintendo Power Club. Ah. I think I still have it in one of my old wallets, the card in one of my old wallets. I love it. How many old wallets do you have lying around? Well, it's, what, you don't have like a junk wallet that's just full of like weird old business cards and your Blockbuster <laughs> no, card? No, it's and funny you bring this up. I recently did that thing where I went through my wallet and got rid of like all the excess bullshit that I don't need. You feel like a new man. <laughs> I put my wallet in my pocket. I was like, oh, my God. I feel like I'm wearing skinny jeans right now. It's amazing. To be fair, this one also had a zipper and an attachment for a cool uh, chain if you wanted. <laughs> so, like, this is a very old wallet. Anyway, yeah. I bought into the hype. You know, uh, Nintendo Power was a direct line between Nintendo marketing and the actual children who needed to beg their parents for this stuff. Yes. Uh, the idea of the VR32 system insane power in a new dimension of gameplay. Like I a hundred percent wanted it to be real. I instinctively bought anything Nintendo put out. I want, I, one of my favorite games on the game boy was super Mario brothers three Wario land. And so knowing that the next title in the series, the sequel to one of my favorite games of all time was going to be on this thing. I uh, rented it from blockbuster. There was a, uh, giant uh, cross-promotional thing where for $10 with a coupon from Nintendo Power, you could rent it for 
uh, five days, I think. And I was like begging my parents as soon as it was available, like, oh, oh, call him, call him, call him. Like, and they'd be like, they, they don't have him yet. Like it was at, during the weird couple of months when it launched, it was, it was important that I get my hands on it. And so like I ended up returning it, immediately turning around and getting it again. I spent like, when all is said and done, about two weeks with the Virtual Boy, I have such pleasant memories of it, uh, playing all those launch games, uh, including Wario Land, Boxer, Galactic Pinball. I remember having Mario Tennis. I had fun with all four of them. And then, like, kind of processing the disappointment that, like, oh, this is what it is. Like, you're stuck playing it on a table. Oh, it's just red and black. Oh, the graphics aren't that good. Oh, the sound is like no better than a regular Game Boy. But it was still a, it was still new Nintendo content. And it was just everything about playing on your Game Boy, but better, you know, higher resolution graphics, like bigger sprites, all, you know, better, uh, a very innovative controller and full stereoscopic 3D. And that's the one thing I really got to stress is the 3D effect worked. Yeah. You stuck your head in there, you adjusted your pupillary distance, and then things were like, you things had depth, things had uh, dimension to it. Totally. But it was just the fact that it couldn't push polygons like the PlayStation or the Saturn or the N64 could. And, and it was only in, yeah, exactly like you said, it was only in red and black, which isn't that crazy in hindsight because at the time Game Boy was monochrome. Mm -hmm. So I can totally see it, especially I already mentioned Gunpei Yokoi, uh, legendary creator of the Game Boy. So that would make sense that um, this new thing would not feel like it needed to be anything other than monochrome. But yet, it's so funny how we give the Game Boy no shit over its being monochrome, but this weird red and black display always has gotten shit. <laughs> Maybe because it's a console. It's like people look at it more as a console proper, and I think uh, Gunpei meant for it to be something in between, and that's why it was a little bit cheaper. It was a little bit this, that, the. It was, and it was supposed to be at the same time completely wireless and mobile, and hand, and, and yeah. And able to be traveled around with. So there is a great uh, paper by Scottish video game academic Stephen Boyer called A Virtual Failure, Evaluating the Success of Nintendo's Virtual Boy. Mm. That lays out, like, if not for this, if not for that, like, if they had the head tracking and it was, like, fully portable so you could strap it in and, like, maybe not thrilling full 3D graphics, but, like, still fun, interactive 3D stuff. That would be enough if it was priced at the same like $99 that the Game Boy was. So it was kind of just a fun novelty that you could take with you on the go in situations where you couldn't take your full size CRT TV and console setup. It would have worked if, you know, yeah, if the if the system as it was envisioned, as was promised with this uh, uh, LED array portable technology for the display, if all of it clicked. It could have been a hit. It could have been a logical successor to the Game Boy. Yeah. Which was this underpowered, monochromatic, weird thing, but you could take it with you on a car and right. it could do and it could simulate the feeling of playing video games in a much more compact, energy efficient shell. I mean, there's so many ifs and zors though, because also you could argue that if they weren't truly putting mo all the majority of their you know staff and energy towards 
the N64 and Mario 64, which kept Mario off the shelf for the Virtual Boy, which we'll talk about a little bit more detail. Those, all that stuff going on in the background in Nintendo, the other things that were about to come, this was like this placeholder console release that uh, was supposed to try, you know, they were just freaking out because Saturn, PlayStation, those were like getting ahead of the the game, uh, where the Ultra 64 for uh, Nintendo, later to be named the N64, they were still heavily in development on that, and it wasn't yet ready to go out the gate. So they're like, we need something. So it was a bit of a frantic push that forced this thing out the door way too quickly. Then all of the liability stuff. Blame the lawyers for this one. There's so much, so much of it got nerfed. So much of the Gunpei's, like, concept got nerfed Mm -hmm. (laughs) by the lawyers due to liability concerns, because it's true. They were like, hey... We don't want kids playing with this thing in a car because let's say a car crash happens and they've got a d- device with like <laughs> plastic shards, you know, it, it, it right up against their eyes. It's, it's a bad scene. It's a bad concept. What you wait, whoa, whoa, whoa! You want you want children to actually wear this headset like a headset? What if they, for no reason, get up from the chair and run into a wall? Yeah. Then we could get sued. Well, and I'll tell you what, I've injured myself with an Oculus on my head a couple times. So like, I get it. And you could have sued Facebook for millions (laughs) and yet you didn't. And yet I didn't. Uh, I will also say, since you gave a shout out, I took a lot from an article on Fast Company Mm. uh, written by a guy named Binge Edwards called Unraveling the Enigma of Nintendo's Virtual Boy 20 years later. It was one of those like goldmine articles where I just got so much from it. So definitely check that out if you want to fill in any gaps that we may have not covered today, but I am excited to get into it. The Virtual Boy, it is a 32-bit tabletop portable video game console developed and manufactured by Nintendo and released back in 1995, marketed to be capable of displaying stereoscopic 3D graphics. Sales were so bad on it that Nintendo ceased distribution and game development just a year later with only 22 games available for the system in total. And not all of those were released in Japan and not all of those were released in the US. And I will go over those a little bit more in a little bit. But yeah, this is such a fascinating story, especially right off the gate or right off the bat, right right out of the gate. There you go. That's both of them in their correct (laughs) way. Uh, you see that the story doesn't start in Japan. It starts in Cambridge, Massachusetts, back in 1985, by the way. And this thing gets out the gate, the door. I'm just going to keep with this gate door kind of imagery, right? Just imagine a door, then imagine a cave. And this cave's located just behind a house. And this is Gunpei, found a cave behind his house oh that my was God. full of virtual reality, full of red <laughs> lines. And he was like, I've got an idea. Now, I'm saying uh, that, uh, yes, they got the Virtual Boy out in 1995. Uh, this story starts a decade earlier in 1985. And this is pre-NES. This is way, way back. Uh, there's an engineer named Alan Becker who had just come up with an idea after a flight he took that involved a small, sharp, high-resolution display attached to a portable computer to use for travel. At the time, laptops were, like, not a thing. Or the ones that did exist had horrible passive matrix displays that were low-resolution, had all sorts of ghosting, and on top of that, batteries at the time, this was before lithium-ion batteries were a thing, would kill it. He comes up with almost like a Google Glass concept. Like, what if... 
all of our reading materials and things like that? What if it was just this little display that you can put right up against your eye, essentially? Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting solution to a problem where uh, he previously worked on uh, scanners, uh, digital scanners that relied on a row of tightly packed LEDs and photo sensors. And that's how, like, to this day, if you have a scanner and you open up the lid on it, you can see all the rows of lights, like, kind of all packed together. And when, uh, with access to one of these, like, tightly packed LED arrays, he realized that, uh, you know, like, those things you can put on the end of, like, bicycle wheels that, like, with the spinning, the persistence of vision lets you see, like, little images. Totally. That's a great example. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, sometimes there are wands you can buy that like you wave mm-hmm. them and it can display a message. Uh, the LEDs have no moving parts. So they're cheap. Well, red LEDs are cheap. Blue LEDs haven't been invented yet. <laughs> Specifically, there we go. We already got it in. Red LEDs <laughs> and only red LEDs. Uh, have no moving parts. And then by attaching a mirror to a basic motor that then flips the mirror back and forth, back and forth, you get a sweeping effect. And so the LED lights can just blink faster than anybody can even perceive. And the flashing mirror creates kind of a scan line, kind of like an old CRT TV. And using these very basic components, you have a bright, clear, uh, high-resolution screen, unlike that's power-efficient, that's portable, that's small, and nothing else. Like, there is no other display solution that can match it. Yeah, this didn't come out of the blue. He was working under a tech wizard named Ray Kurzweil. He was assisting him on his flatbed scanner um, that developed essentially what this technique comes to be for Becker. Uh, Yeah, and he dubbed this device the Scanned Linear Array, SLA. And uh, yes, uh, Becker puts a prototype together over a three-month period using money from local investors in the tech scene in New England, including the director of the MIT Media Lab at the time. We've talked about the MIT Media Lab before, by the way. This is essentially like a laboratory where people from all different backgrounds can meet up to just throw ideas down and create new concepts just like this. And so he got a lot of credit just as a sound investment with these different folks involved in the New England tech scene. He was able to get through some doors, again, bringing doors back up as a just general concept for the episode. In 1986, Becker founds Reflection Technology, Inc., along with a salesman named Neil Golden, a scientist who's worked for Polaroid named Benjamin Wells, and a fellow engineer named Nate Goldschlag. Their first hardware they developed, they dub the Private Eye. And it involved a one-inch display simulating a 12-inch display and was meant to be a way of viewing information in a hands-free way while doing other work. So the idea for it initially was like, say you're a surgeon and you're performing surgery and you've got fucking blood and guts and piss and shit and puke and every all sorts of shit all over your hands and your wrists. Everyone's, somebody walks in like, oh my God, it's hideous. Whoa, I whoa, said tetrazine, 50 milligrams, you son of a bitch. A <laughs> yeah, man is dying. And he's like, wait a second, I need to see his stats. I need to see his vitals. <laughs> and then he uses the private eye. It just goes, blah, 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 blah. and he just like right in front of his eye. And he sees, he's like, oh my God, <laughs> this man is dead. <laughs> right? That's yeah, yeah. a good example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Typical <laughs> surgery scenario we're all familiar with. 
Or even like a mechanic working on a car and his hands are covered in grease and blood and piss. And Jay's like, oh my God, this car is actually a man and he's dying. And then he, he's like, wait a second, I need to see the manual for a Honda Accord, man-human version, right? And he puts that up against his eye, blah, 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 blah. And then he goes, my God, this car is alive. Let's go party. And then they have a car man party, right? That's another example. The technology does work. It is a it does solve the problem, which is how do you get a portable, cheap, energy efficient display into someone's face to transfer information on the go? The only problem is because of the monochrome nature of it and because of its unique formatting issues, uh, you can't just plug it in really into an existing computer. You can't like it requires specialized hardware to feed it the visuals to display. And no computer manufacturer had the balls to be like, yes, we are sh- fuck. DOS, fuck Windows. We're just making private eye based UIs now. Yeah. And so he they couldn't find a regular partner. And um they had this. I don't honestly, this is kind of a brilliant, a brilliant kind of move. They decide, like, forget having it in one eye. If we if you put one in each eye, you can do 3D. Uh-huh. And at the time, it was the early 90s, and VR is a big deal. Computer-generated worlds are a big deal. But one of the huge bottlenecks is the display technology. LCD screens don't move fast enough, and like they're super expensive, and they don't look good pressed up against your face. Like This is actually a really cheap and easy way to get a head-mounted display going. And if there's one thing we know from fighter jets and astronauts and science fiction is... Everybody deeply wants a screen on their face. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling. Up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Especially in the early 90s. The term virtual reality really hits big specifically around them. And again, I remember this. It was weird. It kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, There's certain things that are reasons for it. I will say NASA founded its own research lab for virtual reality in 1990. In 1992, a film called The Lawnmower Man was released, which is hilarious that this movie had such an impact on us being like, virtual reality is here. Because the movie like isn't good and people don't like it, including (laughs) Stephen King himself, who uh, ended up fighting to get his name taken off of the credits because it was such a bastardization of the short story that it was based on. (laughs) Regardless, it's about a scientist who experiments on a gardener to give him greater intelligence, but instead gives him an obsession with becoming a fully digital being. And this just further gets us interested in this digital virtual world. So the team then 
And up to this point, they had a little bit of a breakthrough, I will say, at a, a tech showcase in Las Vegas in 1988. It became this must-see piece of hardware at the show, and they were able to sell a bunch of dev kits for it, including a computer interface board and a headband for about $5,000 a pop. They're starting to make some headway. Then they realize, like, what if maybe we, like, do what you just said, take two private eyes, mounted onto a welder's mask, and... <laughs> I forgot about the welder's mask. <laughs> yes, mounted onto a welder's mask. And then also they included this rudimentary head tracking tech that could monitor the movement of the wearer's head. And again, this is, I think, a very interesting key point of why Nintendo was interested and then you go, why did they get rid of that? That's the part that would have kind of made it more actually like virtual reality. We'll get into that. But yes, they create then in order to show off this technology, in order to show off this kind of two private eye units as one display thing, they create this tank simulator. And man, it is a huge hit in the office. It is a person looking out of a tank window in first person and shooting other tanks. The head tracking kind of works. It's a really cool just showcase for what they're working with. And they end up realizing like, oh, this might be more like less for like a man murdering a patient in a hospital room. Because <laughs> but you butchers, what have yeah. you done to my husband? <laughs> what, have you, what have you done? I'm just a scientist. Damn it. I'm not a man. Or, I don't know what they're doing in there. I don't know why he's saying he's not a man. You know what I mean? But uh, regardless. Why does my husband have two torsos, you monsters? Because I love chaos and I'm a man from hell. Uh, instead of doing typical doctor stuff, typical doctor shit that happens in doctor scenarios, they were like, maybe let's get away from these fucking psychos. They're just over there murder, putting yeah, putting extra body parts in a guy. It's like fucking Megala's Christmas over there, and let's get over. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we're talking about the virtual boy. <laughs> let's, and instead, let's make this like a fun toy. <laughs> oh, cry. Uh, let's make this. Why does this. my Honda have four human legs instead of tires? You wicked private eye. They didn't, they only removed the tombstones, they didn't move the bodies. Private eye. It's a haunted. It was kind of like a Stephen King story. The yeah. private eye that they gave to the doctors and the auto mechanics was haunted, was cursed. And so that's why they kept putting people into the cars or whatever. But they were like, fuck it, let's make this a fucking toy for kids. <laughs> Let's let's make this uh, a video game demo piece. Let's you know, and let's shop it around. Let's let's see if we we actually have if this could work out a pretty cheap VR headset in a landscape where everyone's screaming for VR. Benjamin Wells, the scientist, said uh, that that was from Polaroid. The whole point of the tank demo was to demonstrate head tracking. As you turned your head to the right, what you saw moved by a corresponding amount. The problem is, if there was a noticeable delay between the head movement and the view on the screen, motion sickness occurred. So this is something we all know now as standard 
for the Oculus, I, I got my first bout of nausea when I first got the Oculus Quest just from the basic uh, issue of standing in place mm -hmm. and moving forward, right? That's why they do the teleportation. The teleportation thing is very necessary because it just completely is the barrier between you getting that weird nausea or not. Wells said, if memory serves me, we were always on the too slow side of the vomit point. I don't recall anybody literally throwing up in the office, but I think we were lucky. Uh, Tom Kalinske, former president of Sega of America, said, a big issue was kids got sick, threw up, or fell over when using this. We couldn't take that chance. So they were shopping it to Sega. They shopped it to Mattel, to Hasbro. And they just, they couldn't get behind it. They couldn't get behind the single color display. And, you know, especially for Sega, when they were like, our biggest selling point right now is the Game Gear, which has a full color display. Right. So we don't, we want to, we're trying to be the color people. Rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the color people, the people okay. who enjoy color. Okay. Uh, so Sega tosses this prototype on the reject pile. They then turn to Nintendo. There's a man named Jack Plimpton who serves as their liaison of sorts in Japan. And over at Nintendo, they're riding high at the time. They're off, as I said before, the NES, Game Boy, Super Nintendo, all of that stuff. And apparently uh, the tech coming out of Reflection Technology catches the eye of the man we already mentioned, Gunpei Yokoi, who was the head of Nintendo's R&D 1 division. Classic, legendary, we've talked about them before. And he was, again, responsible for the Game & Watch series of handheld games as well as the Game Boy. And this is right up his alley. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if we, so can we get into Gunpei Yokoi's? I think we've had, we've done episodes on a lot of R&D uh, 1 products like Metroid and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I didn't do a lot of backstory for Gunpei, old Gunpegs. I, I feel like we talked about it before in like the uh, DS episode and, and all sorts of stuff. But it uh, came from... Uh, you know, his uh, father was a pharmaceutical executive. Uh, he got his degree in engineering and electronics and immediately got put to work in the 1960s for Nintendo's uh, Hanafuda card factory. This is before they are even known as a toy maker. He's just the guy in charge of uh, making sure that the cards are all coming out without errors and that the machines are functioning properly. But he gains a reputation as like a tinkerer as kind of a guy who just loves like fooling around with radios and electronics and making fun little gadgets on the side. And so Gunpei actually tells a story about how when he was working at the Hanafuda card factory, a, a group of Yakuza actually knocked on the door and wanted to see uh, someone about the fact that uh, they were on a losing streak gambling because that is what uh, Hanafuda cards were primarily for. <laughs> And that, uh, you know, they wanted to see who was responsible for the cards being like bad luck for them. And so he had to like show them the process and assure them that it wasn't a manufacturing issue. It was that like, it's just, hey, them's the brakes, guys. But it was when uh, uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, the famous president of Nintendo, who we've talked about a million times before, uh, decided to kind of shift focus away from uh, previously failed uh, off ventures like a taxi company and a love hotel <laughs> and a few other things to uh, start producing toys for uh, children to kind of supplant the card market that was like kind of a little bit wavering. Um, that's where Gunpei Yokoi got to shine. And one of his first inventions was the Ultra Hand, a fun little graspy toy that used a kind of accordion scissor switches to reach faraway objects. He then 
uh, began to work on like kind of analog light gun games, a pitching machine. And what he was best known for was taking technology and reducing the price, simplifying and simplifying, getting the maximum kind of wow factor out of, uh, I believe the term is, I believe the wonderful, wonderful term is uh, lateral thinking with withered technology. Ah. And this is how deep his rabbit hole goes. He created a toy called the Lefty RX, which was a remote control car that undercut all the other competition. This was a functioning remote control car for a fraction of the price of the competition. And you know how he got that price down? The car can only turn left. <laughs> that is how much he, because that's like every little extra bit of like, that's less servo motors, that's less uh, circuitry, that's less like to deal with. And hey, a racetrack, you only turn left on a racetrack, right? So fuck it, here. Now your kid can have an RC car for a fraction that he couldn't afford before. Uh, the Game & Watch, same thing. Mm -hmm. He took like, uh, we talked about this. He lit, He saw Japanese salarymen on a train so bored yet enamored with the technology of their newfangled pocket calculators that they were just hitting the buttons randomly just to like play with something. And he was like, well, you can make a game using the same calculator parts. It's just instead of the buttons adding numbers, the buttons just make things happen on the screen. Like the Game Boy used uh, one of the oldest, most established processors, the Z80, something that was like not even, you know, barely uh, useful anymore for modern home computers. But it had been so refined and so commodified and made so energy efficient that it was the perfect engine for a portable game system that only needed four AA batteries to run. His whole deal is unconventional uses for mature technology. And so with the uh, light array, with these new fangled reflections technology screens, if anybody could make a functioning VR system for cheap, it was Gunpei Yokoi. Benjamin Wells, the scientist, said he fell in love with the technology. He pushed it. He said there's a great product here. Also, though, you have to realize this is a point in time when Yokoi's feeling out of place in the industry. And it's totally the opposite of what you just said. The, the industry is now this graphical arms race, right? Yes. Just trying to get the best looking games in the market out and into people's hands to beat out the competitors. That's the opposite of what he does. He wants to work with lo-fi stuff, cheap things. Toy. He is a them. toy. I mean, at the yeah, end of the day, he is a toy maker. And the entire video game industry, in the especially in the years uh, 93, 94, 95, 96, is all about courting these adult or uh, aspirational adult gamers. This actually goes into a ton of what we were talking about in our very first episode, the Sonic the Hedgehog episode. Uh -huh. Sega and Sony were eating Nintendo's lunch by appealing to this harder, edgier, more uh, adult video game consumer. Because the fact is, is that if you can get teenagers and young adults to think your system is cool... Kids will think it's even cooler because kids want nothing more than to be grownups. Yeah. Around this time, Nintendo is dumping its family friendly image and doing the weird, sexy Game Boy ads, like you said, uh -huh. the Play yeah, It Loud campaign. Um, and so the real action is over on the Ultra 64 because uh, the Saturn and the PlayStation are just taking over the world. And all of a sudden, Yokoi is sitting here the toy maker in a world that doesn't want a toy anymore. They want something revolutionary. He actually is drawn to the red and black display. 
He likes the idea. He said the idea was to have it be in total darkness so you would not feel the frame of the screen and therefore uh, get lost in this other reality. Reflections Vice President of Sales and Marketing, a guy named Steve Lipsy, he goes over to Japan to pitch to Nintendo staff, uh, which included Chairman uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, the top dog. Near the end of the presentation, Lipsy heard a thud, and he looked up to see Yamauchi's head on the table. He had passed out. <laughs> Lipsy said his head fell on his hand on the table, and he's sound asleep. Everybody else was just sitting there. Nobody does anything. Lipsy talks to Plimpton, their liaison, on the way out of the meeting, saying it was, quote, a waste of a plane ticket to Japan. But Plimpton responded with, no, that was amazing. In Japanese business, that was the senior guy sending the message to his underlings that they could proceed. They didn't need him to be involved anymore. The project is a go, which is the most <laughs> bullshit-ass business meeting shit. I mean, like, every time I read, like, I read, like, the autobiography of the guy the, the created Nike, like... It's all stories like this. You're just like, what world is this? This is ridiculous. That makes no sense. Like, who falls asleep in the business meeting? It's a good thing during a pitch. Uh, so, yeah, Yamauchi, though, he does truly trust Gunpei. And so he and he knows he's really excited to get this thing off the ground. So he lets him have it. So a worldwide exclusive license was purchased by Nintendo for the private eye with $10 million in advanced royalties. And Reflection Technology was sworn to secrecy about the project referring to their work with Nintendo as, quote, Dragon Project. Uh, and so this is where the Virtual Boy really gets into uh, development, gets kicked into high gear. Initially, Yokoi wanted a game console that looked like a pair of goggles that incorporated the head tracking that he saw in the tank demo. So let's start there, right? He's cool with the red and black display. That's already a big kind of what we attribute to its failure, right? But he's cool with it. And honestly, the Game Boy had it. It was fine. But also, at this point, I think this is a way more sellable thing if they could have gotten this to work. Goggles, portable, that you put on your head and had the head tracking. That adds a whole cool layer to this mm -hmm. situation. You can move around in space. And we're talking about the Oculus Quest at that point, right? And, and that is a very interesting thing. And slowly, we will watch this get stripped down here in this development process. There's an interview with Next Generation Magazine back in the day called An Audience with Gunpei Yokoi, uh, where he says that um, his department, R&D1, had about 60 people specifically dedicated to uh, working on the hardware and developing games for the Virtual Boy. And their initial decision, according to them, is that like VR technology was first and foremost their concept. And that even if they didn't have the, uh, the red and black LED technology, they had experimented with LCD devices in the past. And that's actually true. Uh, even back during the Famicom, there were 3D glasses that they made for the Japanese market uh, that used kind of those LCD shutter technologies. Uh, if you've ever been to a 3D movie and you had not the cool thin glasses, but those like bigger goggles, it's that same technology. Uh, it only ran for a couple of games. And uh, some of those were some of the games that Square developed that, fucked them over and made Final Fantasy their like last gasp at profitability. But whatever, that's an episode for another time. But the point is, is that um, 3D had been and like immersion had been part of the Nintendo background radiation for a while mm -hmm, at that point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So unfortunately, due to concerns, uh, by the way, they called this the VR 32. Uh, this is the new the new name for this thing. Unfortunately, due to concerns around placing a chip with high radio emissions near a user's head. 
as well as the need to cover the internal CPU with a metal plate, which made the device too heavy, they had to move away from the goggle concept. So Im- immediately it's it's not as cool as it was on the outset. That's hilarious, by the way, because the idea was uh, they were using an NEC uh, V1810 processor, which was a 32-bit reduced instruction set uh, pr- CPU. It was a general purpose microprocessor. Supposedly they cut it, they got a deal on them because they were left over from a failed follow-up to the TurboGrafx-16 slash PC engine, and that's why they chose it as the main processor. But it apparently it operated at too high of a frequency and emitted too much radiation. So uh, recent Japanese uh, safety standards said they had to use the steel plate for shielding. Otherwise, the radiation w- could give people brain cancer, <laughs> which was a concern at the time. Do you, I mean, I still remember. But now, it's been debunked since, right? It was just that the research wasn't there to allow them to do that. I mean, I remember being in high school and like kids would buy like foil stickers to put on their cell phones that was supposed to protect them from the weight. Like it's all. Yes. It was a concern. People were like, I don't know if you put the computer on your head, maybe you'll get a case of computer brain. Who knows? Right, right. Right, right. Then they tried a device that wa- one used with a shoulder stand to prop it up on your your face, but there were liability issues. You can find the patent photos on uh, illustrations on this. It looks doofy as hell. It looks so. It, it makes it's like um. Uh-huh. Imagine if uh, I, it does. It sounds like almost like those. You know, when you see a guy in like a comedy that has like a neck brace after getting injured, and he has those big like metal things like attached to his shoulders. It's like uh yeah. It's like it's a comedic hospital traction neck brace yeah. mixed with Bob Dylan's like harmonica holder. <laughs> it's like a dumb thing. It did not look comfortable or fun. Yeah, and, and there were also liability issues again. Now the lawyers are coming in big time they're worried the children are just straight up gonna like fall down a stairwell (laughs) while playing with the with the virtual boy this that and the other so that is how they end up with the all too safe table stand which immediately i feel like it's just not virtual reality anymore nope like it is an inconvenient nintendo yeah it's actually now just a tv screen right up against your eyes like you said they still have the stereoscopic 3D effect, you know. But again, I remember like watching, like remember when like TGIF gave out, you know, 3D glasses and mm-hmm. you like watched it on T. I mean, it's it's not like that. That's like mind blowing technology. You know uh, I mean? It's like have. a nice to have. It's like it's, it's cool. fun. Hey, it's cool. I'm not saying it's not cool, but it's not virtual reality. Right? Oh, not it's even. Ba- a little. It's barely 3D, you know, uh, and they're already working on a real 3D. <laughs> platform with the n64 real 3d is out yeah they are working on real 3d and uh people innately associate virtual reality with polygonal 3d graphics that is like part of the appeal i'm gonna bring up this guy throughout uh the remainder of the episode his name is takafumi makino because he has a lot of great quotes he co-wrote yokoi's autobiography which is called gunpei yokoi game pavilion uh, who, and he had this to say, from what I heard, there was a lot of skeptical opinions raised during the development process. Even Mr. Yokoi admitted that he himself felt uneasy during development. He described it as a kind of hiri hiri feeling. This is an onomatopoeia that only exists in Japanese, but think about it as the sort of feeling you would get when being cooked slowly over a frying pan. I think that actually perfectly describes a certain type of anxiety that I've definitely been, <laughs> felt 
in the past. Yeah. One of the things that apparently really uh, scuffed uh, Yokoi about the process was the fact that like he really was on his own. Everyone else was focused on the Nintendo 64 and this was his like he was just kind of left holding the bag. Um, it's been suggested in many sources that the system was pushed out the door before it was ready just so that Nintendo could have anything to promote to stay in the conversation while Sony and Sega were having their moments with 32-bit systems, just to have the words Nintendo 32-bit just like out there. And it's to the point where in uh, the Next Generation article, it Yokoi is having to answer all these like pressing questions himself, which for someone this senior at Nintendo, he should not be having to do sales presentations and like critic demos. And he's so fla- like he knows he's backed into a corner with this. This is an actual quote when the guy is like uh, when the interviewer is like, so um, this really isn't a virtual reality, huh? It seems like uh, just some weird bullshit, right? Like he, ha- he this is his excuse. We're actually worried about the dangers of head-mounted display technology. This is Yokoi responding. Uh, we considered the fact that if a woman wearing makeup was to use the head-mounted design, the next person wouldn't want to wear it. So, uh, you know, we uh, might release a shoulder-mounted adapter so you won't need a table or desk to use the system. Uh, that will be released later and will cost extra. <laughs> uh, so they also brought in a doctor from the Shepin's Eye Research Institute in Boston to study effects that the system could have on human vision. The results showed that the tech was generally harmless, apparently, except for, ooh, just one thing. Children whose optic system had not yet fully developed, which happens around the ages of five to seven, could develop lazy eye if the two displays were misaligned vertically, which would be a uh, big fucking bummer. So this is why uh, re- the reflection encased the Virtual Boy's displays into a rigid plastic case and precision steel frame, uh, which again makes it a little clunkier probably, but uh, at least fixes that issue. But again, I think that it all just goes to show that in the years since, in the decades after the, the Virtual Boy was released, they did do that research. They did get in there and really figure out what the human uh, body is capable of in, t- in, t- in connection to full head tracking displays through a virtual reality headset, screens right up against the eye. I mean, there's so much research had been done after the mid-90s on this, you know? And it just wasn't there yet. I might be misremembering, but I feel like even back when the... 3DS came out, it was a uh, big to do that. Like if you are under age seven, don't turn on yeah. the 3D. Yeah. Don't do the 3D. It, it really, it really was. And I think even back then though, I will say there was a lot of stuff that they were just afraid of happening. Mm-hmm. And so th- th- that especially that, that uh, a lot of stuff they were afraid of happening that didn't actually was, it wasn't actually a danger, but just the research hadn't been done at that point. How this was uh within the, on the virtual boy, before you start every game, before every game starts up, there's a little men first. There's like a weird little like warning. This might melt your eyeballs. Ha ha, whatever. Or maybe, maybe it might happen. I don't know. Don't sue us. Yes. Uh, there's a thing that says, turn on the automatic pause feature. And this was the first time Nintendo, did this thing that like that thing. where everyone was like hey maybe get up and like don't play a little bit and the games would pause every 20 to 30 minutes with the intention that you are supposed to get up look around and just like get out of the vr zone for a little bit which again along with legal making sure that a ton of warnings got onto the packaging that the system should not be used by kids at the age of seven also there was a new law that japan had come out with called the product liability act 
that was coming into effect, which essentially made companies responsible for any accidents caused by the use of their products. Makino, that co-author, said because of that law, Manual suddenly had to mention a whole list of things that users shouldn't do with them. Sometimes these were quite silly, things like don't dry a wet cat (laughs) using this microwave. If an action wasn't condemned in the manual, the company would be responsible for the damage. Yokoi said, the manual in effect became a list of don'ts. The people who bought the product had no idea about the provisions of the PL Act. And so when they read the instructions, they got the image that this product was bad for your health. So between the 15, I saw it as a 15 minute warning. Oh, okay. By the way, not 20 to 30 minutes. So even worse than that. So between that warning, between all the warnings on the label, all this kind of stuff in the manual because of the Product Liability Act, all led to one thing, a paranoia about this console, whatever you want to call it. It's like something in between a handheld and a console. And, and and I remember that in the States. It was apparently far worse in Japan than it was, but it got to the States because I remember parents were afraid of this product. Mm-hmm. Like they thought it was, it was going to fuck us up or whatever. And obviously it did give people headaches. People always joke about how it didn't, you know, it wasn't kind to the mind. Uh, it gave, gave people people uh, issues, but but it wasn't going to kill you or make you, you know, give you cancer or whatever. Uh, but this all made people feel like it would. And why wouldn't it? There's just warnings all over this thing, uh, including the gameplay itself. So, yeah, that that is a huge factor. There's so many things going against this thing being successful. Uh, another thing going against it is the price. It's in a $180 launch price, which, uh, you know, adjusted for inflation would be $305 now. Uh, which is as much as an Oculus uh, Quest at this point. Like, you can get the full actual VR experience that the uh, Virtual Boy promised now for the price of the Virtual Boy launch. But again, a Game Boy was only $99, and uh, a PlayStation was $299. So it was, like, too cheap for a full-size console, so they couldn't, like... You know, maybe if they had charged more, they could have gotten the extra colored LEDs for full color graphics or gotten the head mounting to work or done all this extra stuff. Uh, if it was cheaper, maybe it could have just been a fun toy right. and it wouldn't have been all this pressure when it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. And, you know, uh, I bought like novelty people buy cheap VR headsets all the time just to stick their phone in. That's like a one way to go about it. But that $180 launch price just left it in this awkward middle zone where it was too big of an investment and also not substantial enough either way. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah. Fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. 
One shining light would probably be the controller was kind of cool. It was M-shaped. It had two D-pads, which was pretty novel at the time. I mean, dual analog sticks did not work. They didn't exist yet. So, yeah. And only a few games really make use of it. But when they do, they do. And it's and and, and they essentially are way, way ahead of the game. Uh, Innsmouth no Yakata was a game based on H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. And it was uh, had you going around a mansion killing frog monsters while trying to exit to each while trying to find the exit to each level quickly because there was a timer that if the timer ran out, it was just game over. And this actually used the two D-pads like we see today with the left one being for movement, the right one being for aiming. And that becomes a standard for first-person shooters uh, a couple years later. It's weird. It weirdly has a couple of these little things that were ahead of its time. Red Alarm, God bless Red Alarm, which was the only kind of vaguely... Uh, I, I don't want a, a traditional 3D title in which you kind of it had a S- Star Fox style low poly spaceship uh, left was for movement right was for moving the camera around to help adjust like where you're going, uh, which leagues ahead of how 3D navigation worked. Um, it was all in wireframe, though. Yeah. So uh, when there was a lot happening on screen, it's all you saw was a bunch of lines. Yeah, it just looked crazy. It was like Star Fox times a hundred like SNES Star Fox. It's like, it's like Star Fox. If it was rendered in uh uncooked spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. The, what was the Jack bros mm. by Atlas, which was technically the first uh, Shin Megami Tensei game to ever reach American shores oh, cool. was a dual stick shooter with the left stick uh, controlling your character movement and your right stick controlling uh, which way you were shooting. Very cool. And that, again, uh, way ahead of its time uh, for, you know, decades before Geometry Wars and all that shit. And uh, what was the monkey game? That was the first time I used uh, two analog sticks. Oh, Ape Escape. Ape Escape. Yeah, that was definitely by far the first time. I, and I remember being like, what the fuck is this? feels so weird, which is hilarious because now it's just like the most natural thing. Uh, so yes, with all of these roadblocks, Nintendo normally would probably have canceled this project entirely, but, but this, as, as mentioned previously, the N64 launch was a couple years away at that point, and they're just staring down the barrel of this Sony and Sega release of the PlayStation and Saturn, and they just need something on the market, which I think is probably, I'm sure they feel is a mistake in hindsight. Another big selling point that was left in the trash for the Virtual Boy was just straight up Mario, and... Yokoi is informed that he needs to actually stay away from Mario on the Virtual Boy. They were holding Mario at bay because they wanted him to have this big splashy comeback with Mario 64. And I remember like the disappearance of Mario, especially because, you know, the sequel to Super Mario World was Yoshi's Island, which classically had very little Mario, or he's at least just this like crying baby the whole time. He's not really the Mario we know, right? So he just went away for quite a long time and was in the wings and was definitely clearly like just missing from the Virtual Boy in a lot of ways. Mario is on Mario Tennis, uh, which is a very standard tennis game. Not a lot of going on there. And a remake of the arcade Mario Bros with Mario Clash. Uh. That was like very, very little. And of course, our big platformer you've already talked about was that Wario Land game. So, okay, let's break these down because these are, uh, first of all, these were all developed by R&D1. So while they're putting it together, they have to crank out all these games. And one of the big complaints with a lot of these games is that they are kind of insubstantial. Like the Mario's Tennis, technically the first entry in the Mario Sports um, 
franchise. Mario's previously, you know, he's like a little race car driver on the box art of like some uh, racing games. He's the golfer in Mario Golf, kind of. But like this was the first sports game advertised as Mario Blank. Oh, wow. The uh, it's there's no special moves. There's like this, you know, the stages aren't that different. There's really no special modes. Uh, there's no two player. Even though there was a uh, link cable. Yes, there was a link cable. Well, there was uh, a link port. cable port, but no link yeah. cable. No cable. That was going to, so that you could put to connect to Virtual Boys, but it would never had a, it just didn't exist long enough uh, 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 in a retail space for them to create a game for it. Mario Clash, which was the recreation of the Mario Bros. original game, you know, the one with the POW block where you're just like kind of, it's, you know, it's just, clearing the screen of the turtles as they come out of the pipe. That also was a game that was really based on a kind of the two-player interaction, you know, uh, yelling at your friend because he used the POW block too early, bumping into each other. Like, the core of that game really was the co-op kind of experience, and that's gone. Uh, There's no real plot. You're just kind of, you reach the high score, and that's it. Um, Virtual Boy Wario Land is amazing. It is a solid platformer with great graphics, barely uses the stereoscopic effect. Yeah, when it does, it's cool. He does the thing that they do a lot in like Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze and other games of its ilk, other platformers that came after it where they have action sequences that happen in the foreground and then he ends up like bopping into the background and doing stuff in in the distance and then coming. And that is really cool looking even today, I feel like. And that ties into the fact that Within Nintendo, you did not mess with other teams' characters that much. Uh, The reason why it was Wario is because uh, Gunpei Yokoi, when he was designing the Game Boy, R&D 1 did make a Mario game, and that was the first Mario Land that everyone agrees is a little bit off. It's not, it doesn't have that same flavor. Everything from the world-trotting settings to the fact that the fireball is like this weird bouncy thing. And once they introduced Wario, R&D 1 is like, I hate working within the confines of this other team. We have to run everything by this other team. Like, it's very confining. Let's just make Wario games. And um, the next couple of Wario games kind of changed everything by uh, kind of introducing the idea that Wario is indestructible and each enemy gives him different status effects. And Uh it becomes more of this puzzle platformer thing. Uh, Wario Land is... More a successor to that original Wario Land game. And Mario Land. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it still has a lot of fun, a lot of exploring. You got to find all these hidden treasures. Uh Your ending depends on how many coins you collect. So, like, getting money actually matters in this game. I looked up, like, a playthrough of it, and it is, uh, I think, like, a Mm two-hour-long experience. (laughs) So, you know, you're still getting... And, And the cool thing about Wario Land on Game Boy, I mean, you talked about how much you love that game. You know, I feel like that game had a lot of go backtracking, mm-hmm. a lot of secrets, a lot of extra stuff. So yeah. you would you could really you could beat that game relatively quickly, but if you wanted 100% that game, you really had to go digging deep and it would take you quite a long time. Uh whereas this game's very just No, no, no. by the numbers. 2 hours with collecting all the treasures gets you the best ending, but like if for your first playthrough going in blind, you can be wandering. You okay. can actually like be Finding all these secrets. It's actually really good. Oh, that's cool. My favorite game was Tellero Boxing. Yeah, I was about to bring it up for you. A, a punch out like Tellero Boxer. Very cool. With the limitations that you can't, you don't have head tracking. It's sprite based graphics, but it's in 3D. This is an amazing game. 
where you are, it's literally the same premise as real steel. You are a human controlling a robot. And if you lose, it's actually this really frightening effect where the screen switches to static and goes black. Cause that means your robot like disconnected, but each D pad controls each fist. And so you're blocking, countering, doing uppercuts, doing special moves. And the game has a lot of uh, character. There's like funny uh, little scenes every time you beat a boxer and the big robot crumbles and you see the weird little nerd you were fighting the whole time. (laughs) And the 3D effect, the first person effect works because in a boxing match, you're not really moving your head. You're just staring straight ahead and just moving everything else. And so it really captures the potential of what the Virtual Boy could have done. It is a solid game and uh, it takes a lot of memorization and pattern recognition and that kind of punch out or, or now I guess it's Dark Souls style gameplay <laughs> where you're reading like animation ticks yeah. and like trying to figure out what's coming next. But I have nothing but positive memories of Tellero Boxer. And then I also have written here, uh, holy shit, Waterworld is fucking bad. <laughs> the irony, the raw irony <laughs> that the only tie-in game for the most failed Nintendo console is the most failed action movie of the 90s. Yes. yes. Waterworld is a simple arcade shooter. It's basically uh, if you took asteroids and just lowered the camera angle so you're behind the ship instead of looking from above. I think the crazy thing is you're like, your ship's just like running into other structures and people. The people were like the size of these massive structures. It was one of those things where I'm just like, all of the just ratio of size is so fucking warped in this bizarre thing. It made me like depressed. Oh, that's because uh, everything <laughs> is just red blips in a inky black infinite void. Yeah, it just made me so upset. Kind of like the movie did. Uh, I'd rather drink my own piss than play Waterworld on the Virtual Boy. Yeah. So in total, there were 22 games released on the Virtual Boy. Only 22. Three of those games were released in the U.S. only. Eight of those games were released in Japan only. So if you were an American getting Virtual Boy games, you were only had access to 14 games total. And we just talked about how only like two of them are okay. You know? <laughs> So, man, just brutal, brutal, brutal. So the interesting thing is that um, the legacy... Meanwhile, because the graphics looked so janky and the selling point of the system was the stereoscopic 3D and there's literally no way to advertise it. Yes. There were tons of display kiosks, the Blockbuster promotion. There was like $25 million in promotion. A lot of that was just getting these units out into video game stores and toy stores and public. And it's and in small doses, you just play a little bit of Tellero Boxer and you just go like, ah, OK, whatever. Yeah, the Virtual Boy made its first appearance in the public at a software exhibition in Japan in November of 1994 with the pinball game uh, called Space Pinball, which is a pinball game in space, as well as Tellero Boxer. The reaction was mixed immediately due to the all-red display and the projected retail price of $200, when at the time, Game Boys were selling for $60 with the Tetris pack-in. And that was the other thing, too. This this Virtual Boy didn't really have a killer app, Mm. like Tetris, Super Mario World. I mean, they were so good at the killer app, and it just didn't have one. The reaction was similar when it was first shown in the U.S. in January of 95. 
and then another big setback came with the media in Japan that was already coming after video games quite a bit during this time. Sensationalized the health warning stuff with the Virtual Boy. Made it pretty clear to parents this thing would destroy their kids' eyes, which was total bullshit. So the thing actually launches in Japan in July of 95 with very little enthusiasm. At least in the U.S. when it's released in August of 95, there wasn't the intense paranoia from the media like in Japan. So sales were decent at first. They also, like you said, partnered with blockbusters to rent the system out to folks so that they could try it. Though I feel like that would be a detriment to it because they could try it and also be like, well, I played all the games that exist on it in a weekend and here's the system back. That's what happened to me. Yep. (laughs) That's literally what happened to me. So they actually do outsell the Sega Saturn initially in the US. The writing was on the wall even then uh, because they end up lowering the price by 20 bucks just a couple of months later. Uh, And then only six months after it was put on the market, having sold only 140,000 units in Japan, Nintendo decides to pull the product from shelves. Makino said what Yokoi really regretted was the fact that he hadn't managed to develop a new, completely different type of video game. Sales slowed heavily in the U.S. as well, even after a price drop to just $100, where honestly... It could have, if it started at 100, maybe, maybe it could have gotten more traction. Maybe they needed better games. They just did. If they didn't have the games, it just wouldn't sell. Even the best game, I don't even know if the best game could have translated to marketing. Mm-hmm. This object was a toy made by a toy maker who had to compromise a lot of the things that made it a fun toy. Yeah. Totally. At an age where uh, video games were being marketed so aggressively and promising so much. If we could play just a clip from uh, this 1995 ad where the Game Boy is a evil robot trying to kill someone, uh, I think this <laughs> speaks to the inconsistency of product and vision. It came from the third dimension with its own brain, its own voice, its own legs. There's only one problem. It needs your eyes. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Even Gunpei himself was like, give me a million dollars or a million yen and I will get this fucking thing off the ground. And and they just they they just didn't allow that and just did, you know, yeah, just kind of buried it with the marketing and the way that they got it out. But at the same time, it was very hard to sell the damn thing. I mean, I don't know what Gunpei was going to do, but uh, either way, I will say Yokoi... He wasn't held over the coals for this failed project, it seems, which is nice. The whole thing was kind of swept under the rug. He had wished his legacy to end with Nintendo focusing on three different product types moving forward. Consoles, mobiles, and wearables. And that was going to be the Virtual Boy was going to be the first wearable. That, of course, didn't happen. At least, however, Gunpei, he was supposed to retire before the Virtual Boy and ended up sticking around longer just to get that thing out. Then when it failed... He holds on just a little bit longer from retiring so that he could end with a high. And that high is the Game Boy Pocket, which was a lot smaller, had a much better battery life and a better display, like a bigger one, clear one, and was very popular in retail. And I had one and loved it. And uh, so that was a great end, great, great way to end his legacy. A lot of people say, you know, he's sort of like had this very sad uh, exit from Nintendo, but honestly, he did end on a bit of a high with that. The sad part comes next. He retires in August of 1996, 
four years after he'd actually planned to. And then uh, he does a little bit of stuff on his own. He creates a handheld that gets out. What was it for? Uh, for Bandai, he yes. creates the Wonder Swan, which the is Wonder this Swan, yeah. uh, a beloved handheld. It can be played vertically as well as horizontally. It's a further improvement on the original Game Boy. Even better battery life, even better graphics. Like, it's a delightful little yeah. piece of tech. And and he planned to do more. I mean, he just he was just going to kind of do his own thing after post Nintendo. But unfortunately, he is struck by a car and killed in 1997, just one year after his retirement. It's so tragic and sad. But I will say that his legacy is not tragic. Uh, he you know just because the Virtual Boy was this big failure, he did too many things that improved the gaming space. Nintendo would not be Nintendo without yeah, without It him. literally would not exist without him. And I love that he at least did get the Game Boy Pocket out as a final little, and honestly, fucking awesome product, the Game Boy Pocket. So small, so it's so like, Easy to, you know, take on the go. Yeah, it was a great, great, great product. So I just want to acknowledge something because I think even in past episodes, I might have made like passing reference or light of this. There were rumors for decades after his death that uh, Nintendo's uh, connections to the Yakuza was responsible for his death, that President Yamauchi was so upset that he had quit Nintendo and was going to share his secrets with uh, competitor Bandai that they used these ancient Yakuza ties to get the, that's why he got murdered. Hmm. And that is 100% debunked. It's just they're, these are mostly American fans just trying to put the pieces together. And it makes for a more captivating story that behind the facade of this child's toy company, there's like cold-blooded killers. But uh, actual news reports from Japan makes the accident read as a very unfortunate, just traffic accident yeah. it's uh japanese highways the shoulders aren't as big as in america uh they didn't use road flares uh the car that struck gunpei the driver and his wife were also severely injured like it was it's there was not foul play no. he was not cast out in shame and then murdered also there are no nintendo secrets the secret of nintendo is you play mario on nintendo stuff <laughs> like the whole point is how about, like, the Switch is literally an old mobile processor that they just reuse. Like, there is no magic Nintendo secret. Also, uh, Reflection Technology, Inc. does end up uh, essentially going into financial ruin after the failure of the Virtual Boy. There was this other product they had, which allowed one to see faxes ahead of time using the private eye device. So if you were some sort of office worker and you're just like stabbing your boss, <laughs> my hands are too filled with the mortality of man to see the fax coming in. Dear God, someone please tell me the fax that's coming in. And then blah, 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 blah. And it would just go onto their eye yeah, yeah. and they would be like, oh. It's an advertisement for a new office toilet. Back to my murder spree. Oh my God, I'm stabbing my boss until he dies. I'm covered in his urine. You know what I mean? There is a, uh, in the Iwata asks that they uh, made for the 3DS, Iwata kind of goes off script and says, hey, I don't know when else I'm going to be able to talk about this. Let's talk about the virtual boy. And uh, Miyamoto and uh, Shigesato Itoi of Earthbound fame, also uh, one of the heads on Project Jack and the Beanstalk, if you remember yes, that Pokemon Snap, from Pokemon Snap. Uh, start talking about it. And they have, you know, they just look back on it as like a just a, a, a little bump in the road in Nintendo's history. Uh, you know, selling 100,000 uh, units is a great start. If you think of it as just a fun toy, that's a great success if you sell 50,000 units of your toy. 
if viewed like that, Virtual Boy was, I think, an appealing toy. To people who viewed it like that, I think it's still an appealing product. It's only when you face it front and center as the core of a licensing business that it falls apart. Um, Shigesato Itoi says, uh, a problem is uh, how you looked when you played it. I uh, tried to put myself into it, peering into the Virtual Boy, dot, dot, dot. It's not very cool. They then go into how uh, the Virtual Boy had two big tasks to accomplish. It went out into the world without satisfying either one. Um, it's not that the machine was wrong as a product. It's that we were wrong in how we portrayed it. Uh, Itoi says, I'm not sure how to put it, but there was no way for the Virtual Boy game console to permeate one's daily life. Mm -hmm. Nintendo's products are entertainment that have always found a way to enter into everyday life. There isn't anything particularly unique about viewing uh, a Virtual Boy as a slightly unusual toy that you can enjoy apart from everyday life. But when lined up with Nintendo's other products, it didn't quite fit in. Yeah, it felt like more of like a Spencer's Gifts product, yeah. you know, than a, than a Nintendo product. It was an anomaly for sure. It was a gimmick. But it's still alive and well in the minds of fans. Mm -hmm. The Virtual Boy shows up constantly as an Easter egg in Nintendo products like Smash Brothers, like Animal Crossing. It's uh, it's like 600 bucks for one. I already checked because I want one now. I, I realized. By Nintendo standards, the production run was microscopic. The game production runs are even smaller. So for Nintendo completionists, yeah, the prices are insane, mm -hmm. especially because uh, a lot of the bits of construction lend itself to falling apart. Over time, uh, the face mask foam crumbles, the screens come loose, there's glue inside that like falls apart. So the collectors really, uh, having a pristine Virtual Boy is exceptionally valuable. And the games themselves, I, I don't know the current price, but I've read that uh, something like Jack Brothers, which is, uh, you know, featuring Jack Frost from the Shin Megami Tensei series, for Atlas completionists, you know, oh, yeah. the Persona games, like, you know, they're, those fans are intense. And so for completionists of that, they're willing to pay like $2,000 for a mint copy factory sealed Damn. of Jack Brothers. That's awesome. So it the love, the uniqueness, the promise of it has a still active fan community sure. producing demos, producing ROMs. One of the most famous ones is a never released port, a someone according to legend personally uh commissioned someone to make a port of street fighter 2 for the virtual boy and commissioned link cables the heretofore never produced before link cables to actually fit into the extension socket and let people play street fighter 2 on the virtual boy between two wow. actual units uh suppose it can't be released because obviously of copyright uh claims but like if you go to planet virtual boy breathless documentation every article from every 90s game magazine from across the world rare footage from the trade show floors uh still active forums where people communicate like different ways to try and get it to run on different platforms like the virtual boy was with us briefly but it left an impact yeah and i think reflection technology inc and the virtual boy and gunpei himself all really do hold the legacy of busting down the door on the concept of wearable computing and augmented reality. And this totally comes true for all of us. Uh, just a couple deck, just a couple, a couple full decades <laughs> later. But that's kind of amazing how, how much of a risk they took and how novel this was at the time, especially. Now it's, now there's multiple VR headsets on the market, this, that, and the other. Man, just, just crazy that they tried to get this to happen 
in the mid fucking 90s. Like that is so crazy to me. Well, anyways, I think that about wraps it up. This is our episode on The Virtual Boy. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do weekly bonus episodes for just $5 a month. For $15 a month, you can join our Sunday study sessions. Every Sunday afternoon, we get together and we talk about whatever topic we're covering that week. If it's a movie, we'll watch the movie. If it's a game, we'll play the game. You you get the idea. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out on Twitch twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I do streams Monday, Tuesday, and Friday evenings. Uh, Please catch it when you can. Love to see Whizbrew fans coming in and saying what's up. Jake! Uh, All you got to do is uh, follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung, and you can read all my thoughts and plops and get previews for uh, little research tidbits that are coming down the pipeline. Uh, And, uh, you know... Uh, check out that Patreon. I really think it, um, what's the word? Helps me be alive. There you go. Helps them live. All right. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're gonna make it out of here, we gotta work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. This is why you watch 7 News at 5. This breaking story is happening as we speak. To get breaking news from the alert desk. When I know about it, you'll know about it first. So you're always connected with what's happening now, only on 7 News at 5.